If you would tonight, go with me to Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28. And uh, tonight we come to one of those passages in Scripture where if you have your daily Bible reading in the morning, you want to make sure that you've already had your cup of coffee. Or maybe a five-hour energy, or maybe you stand up while you read it. Because just speaking from personal testimony, this is some of those passages of Scripture that if you're not intentionally engaged, if you're not seeking to learn and focus on what the passage is saying, your eyes can quickly glaze over and, and you start to doze and, and lose track of where you are. And I think part of that is because our current worship of the Lord under the new covenant, under the Lord Jesus Christ, and worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth, not tied to any particular city or any particular temple or tabernacle, not tied to animal sacrifices, the priestly rituals like we, like we read in the book of Exodus. Our worship of the Lord is so different from that that all these details seem, seem sometimes to kind of go over our heads or go in one ear and out the other. But one of the things to think about, and I've mentioned this already in this portion of Exodus, is how much Scripture is devoted to the tabernacle. I mean, you look at, you begin in chapter 25 of Exodus, and all the way through the end of Exodus, that's 16 chapters, all but three of those have to do with the tabernacle. Whether it's design, it's components, the, the ministering of the priests, as we will begin to look at tonight in chapter 28. And so it's clearly an important part of God's word and God's dealings with his people especially when you consider that 25 to 31, chapters 25 to 31, is almost essentially repeated again in chapters 35 to 40. When God says, okay, here's how I want you to do it in chapters 25 to 31, then in chapters 35 to 40, this is how they did it. And they put it into practice as God had commanded them. And so this is an important part of God's holy word. Even when you consider these two chapters, the next couple that we're going to be looking at, chapter 28 and 29, there's about 89 verses in these two chapters. The whole crossing of the Red Sea and the song that they sang after the crossing of the Red Sea only took 52 verses. So this is, there's a lot of attention paid to this in Scripture. What I'm going to do tonight is something a little bit different than what my normal pattern. Normally, I would read through the whole passage and then begin to expound it and apply it. Just because of the length of this passage and all the details that are involved, I think what I want to do is read through it, and then as I read through it, I'll stop and make some comments along the way after verses where, where I would like to make comments. And then at the end, I'll try to bring it together into some points of application that what we can learn from this passage, principles that, that cross over from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant and help us to see the abiding validity of these words. And so let's begin reading in Exodus chapter 28 and verse number 1. Moses writes, these are the words of the Lord now, Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me 
as priests. Just something to draw your attention to right away in verse number one is the concept of being set apart from the rest of the Israelites for a sacred task. And you can see that in the language of bring Aaron and his sons and bring them out from among the Israelites. And so there are the, there's the Israelites as a whole, but from among the Israelites, Aaron is going to be specially set apart as sacred for God. His sons are going to be specially set apart for this function as priests in, in the worship of the Lord. And so they're set apart, they're distinct, they're separate from the rest of the people for this very special task. We also see the idea of priesthood in verse number one. Now, we've, I've preached in Genesis and in Exodus now on Sunday nights. And all the way through Genesis and now where we are in Exodus chapter 28, the concept of priesthood has only been mentioned three times and very briefly before now. One of them is early on in the life of Abraham when we encounter a man by the name of Melchizedek who is called a priest of the Most High God. In fact, he was like a king priest of the city of Salem. He comes out and Abraham meets him after this great victory when he rescued Lot and his family. So Abraham has the spoils of victory and Abraham gives to Melchizedek one-tenth of the spoils of the victory and offers it as a tithe to the Lord. So we have that very brief encounter with Melchizedek, who is called a priest of the Most High God. A little bit later on in Genesis, we learn that Asenath, who is Joseph's wife, probably the only time in Scripture that she's mentioned, she was the daughter of an Egyptian priest. That's all it says. doesn't expound on it anymore, but... Joseph's wife was the daughter of an Egyptian priest. And then in the beginning of Exodus, we come across a man by the name of Jethro, or in some passages he's called Reuel, and he is Moses' father-in-law. Moses' father-in-law is called a priest of Midian. But again, not, not very much detail is given about the role of Jethro as a priest of Midian or or this Egyptian priest whose daughter Joseph married, really not much is even said about Melchizedek as his role as priest in the city of Salem. It's not until we get to here that this concept of being a priest begins to be expounded on and explained in Scripture. But one of the things that's evident, though, is that the concept of priesthood was not unique to the people of Israel. We saw it in Egypt. We saw it in Midian. We saw it in different places. We saw it with Melchizedek. And so the the concept of priesthood is not unique to the nation of Israel, but the specific way that God calls Aaron and his sons and the specific commands that he gives them and the way that he consecrates them and their service is very unique in comparison to the other nations. One essential distinctive is that Aaron and his sons are serving before the one and only God. Not serving different gods or multiple gods, the many gods. There's only one God. And the way in which he is to be worshipped is governed by his holy word. And so Aaron and his sons are to be set apart 
for this service. If you notice in verse 1 also that Nadab and Abihu are set off as a pair, and then Eleazar and Ithamar are set off as a pair. And that may begin to foreshadow some events that are coming down the road where Nadab and Abihu do not worship the Lord in the proper way, and they are killed because they did not worship the Lord in the proper way. And so these, these are set apart for the worship of the Lord and to, to serve as priests before God. Verse 2 says, Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. The idea of sacredness is really just the idea of holiness, the idea of something being set apart as special. So just as Aaron and his sons are to be set apart, they are to wear special, set-apart, sacred garments for this special task. And they are to be dignified, honored. One translation has it, glory and beauty. So their clothing, the garments that are to be made for this task, they are to represent the glory and the beauty, the dignity and the honor of the Lord. So they are to represent Him even in the way that they are attired for this task. Verse 3 says, Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so that he may serve me as priest. Aaron was to be the high priest. His sons were to serve under him also as priests. As we move forward in Israel's history, we will see that only the sons of Aaron are set apart for the priesthood. And from among them is called one special, unique priest that was to serve as the high priest, who had special roles and functions. Some of the the descriptions that are here about the, the attire or the clothing of the priests goes to all the priests, but some of the items that we'll look at are only for the high priest, such as the ephod and the breast piece. Those are only for the high priest to wear. This verse says that skilled workers, workers of wisdom, were called to make these. Now think about all that would have to go in. As we read these descriptions, these garments, there were multiple layers, multiple um, very specific instructions given on the way that they were to be fashioned, the colors, the metals, the types of cloth that were to be used. And so you had to have all kinds of different skills involved in the making of these garments. Those who would weave the fine linen, the fabric, those who were able to to make it, sew it together and construct a garment, those who were good at embroidery in in design, those who were good at metalwork. We see here the, the some gold chains that are a part of the garments. Those who were good in the, the working with precious metals and stones, engraving. So all kinds of different skills were used in the making of these garments. And I think one of the things that it's important for us to see is that all of, all of those skills are given by the Lord. In verse number 3, it says, Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters to make these things. It's a reminder that every skill, every ability that we have is ultimately from the Lord, isn't it? It's ultimately from His grace. 
And this also highlights, I think, the importance of what of using what we might refer to as ordinary or common skills or or working with our hands. All of this can be done for the glory and the beauty of the Lord. All of these noble occupations can bring honor and glory to God. One commentator says this, the Holy Spirit is the source of all human ability, including artistry and craftsmanship. And so these are especially endowed by the Lord. Verse number four says, these are the garments that they are to make a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They're to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so that they may serve me as priests. And each of those garments is going to be described in the verses that come. Verse 5 says, Have them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and fine linen. If you remember, these are the exact same materials and same colors that were used in the making of the tabernacle. So just, and we mentioned this before, that, that the closer that a particular room or a particular furnishing was to the very presence of God, the more costly, the more precious, the more beautiful was the material that was to be used. And so in the Holy of Holies, you had gold, and you had these fine linens, and you had these beautiful colors. And so the priests, who were going to be the ones who were serving in closest proximity to the presence of the Lord, their garments were to be made out of the same type of beautiful and costly materials. Verse 6, here are the instructions now specifically for the ephod. Make the ephod of gold and of blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and of finely twisted linen, the work of skilled hands. Sometimes I think when we think of an ephod, we think of something that is metal maybe like a solid object. And, and that thought might come to us from later on in the book of Judges, where Gideon sins and allows an ephod, a golden ephod, to be turned into an idol. Now, most likely that ephod of Gideon was not made of solid gold, but maybe was lined with gold or embroidered with gold, because an ephod is essentially not a solid material. An ephod is a garment. And so an ephod, think of it as like an apron. Basically, over the, the full robe of the priest, he would wear this ephod, which was coming down in the front and coming down in the back, down below the waist, and it had shoulder pieces on the top, and there was a, a belt that drew them together around the middle. It looked essentially like an apron. And so this ephod was to be made with skillful hands of these very costly materials, Verse 7 says that it is to have two shoulder pieces attached to two of its corners so it can be fastened. Its skillfully woven waistband is to be like it, of one piece with the ephod, and made with gold and with blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and with finely twisted linen. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. In the order of their birth, six names on one stone and the remaining six on the other. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones, the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Then mount the stones in gold filigree settings and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod 
as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. Make gold filigree settings and two braided chains of pure gold like a rope and attach the chains to the settings. And so essentially you have an apron and then at the top of the apron, both in the front and in the back is attached these shoulder pieces. And then on the shoulder pieces, you have these two stones, onyx stones. And on those onyx stones are engraved six names on one side, one stone, six names on the other side on the other stone of the names of the sons of Jacob, which is very symbolic because what it means is that as Aaron would go into the presence of the Lord, he is representing all of the people before God. He stands as their mediator. He stands as their representative and goes into the presence of the Lord and he bears their names before the Lord. And so that was the ephod. And this the priest was to be a mediator between God and man. He represented God to the people and he represented the people before the Lord. Verse 15 begins to describe the breast piece that was attached to the front of the ephod. Verse 15 says, fashion a breast piece for making decisions, the work of skilled hands. Make it like the ephod of gold and of blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and of finely twisted linen. Again, I think, at least in my mind, I would always consider the, the breastplate or the breastpiece to also be solid metal. But that's not the way it's described here. The, the breastpiece was also of linen. It was of cloth, finely woven, and into the cloth was woven these different precious metals, precious stones that also represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And so in this breastplate, this breastpiece was made of finely twisted linen. It is to be square, a span long and a span wide and folded double. So essentially what you had is one piece of cloth, finely twisted linen. And when you folded it like this, it would measure a perfect square, approximately nine inches across and nine inches down. And it was to be placed in the middle of the ephod attached to the top, to these shoulder pieces with a gold chain and then attached to the bottom with blue cord. And this, this ephod or this breast piece finely woven was made into like a pouch. That's why it was folded and so you had this long piece of cloth folded into nine inch square and it was like a pouch with a pocket in the middle and it was attached here to the front of the ephod. And then verse 17 says, then mount four rows of precious stones on it. The first row shall be carnelian, chrysolite and beryl. The second row shall be turquoise, lapis lazuli and emerald. The third row shall be jacinth, agate and amethyst. The fourth row shall be topaz, onyx, and jasper. Now, if your translation has a, a little bit different wording there, it's because some of these terms are very, very hard to, to nail down with precise definition because they only show up maybe one or, once or twice in all of the Old Testament. And so the identification precisely of some of these precious stones are, is not certain. And so some translations might have it just a little bit differently. But each of these stones was to be placed on this breast piece and woven in. 
there to be twelve stones, one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal with the name of one of the twelve tribes. So you can see the importance of the idea of representation, can't you? They have twice, two different times, two different ways, all twelve names of the sons of Israel are carried by the priest into the presence of the Lord. Twelve names on these two onyx stones on the shoulders. Twelve names individually engraved on these twelve stones on the breastpiece. He carries them in before the Lord because he is their representative. What's interesting is that when we get to the New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21, we have stones that are similarly described as this in the New Jerusalem. Also representative of the people of God before the Lord. Verse 22 says, For the breastpiece, make braided chains of pure gold like a rope. Make two gold rings for it and fasten them to two corners of the breastpiece. Fasten the two gold chains to the rings at the corners of the breastpiece and the other ends of the chains to the two settings, attaching them to the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front. Make two gold rings and attach them to the other two corners of the breastpiece on the inside edge next to the ephod. Make two more gold rings and attach them to the bottom of the shoulder pieces on the front of the ephod, close to the seam just above the waistband of the ephod. The rings of the breastpiece are to be tied to the rings of the ephod with blue cord, connecting it to the waistband so that the breastpiece will not swing out from the ephod. This is what I was mentioning a moment ago, that basically you had gold chains that were attached to the top of this pouch, and they connected to the shoulder pieces, the top of the ephod. Then you had blue cord that attached it to the waist, to the waistband, to this belt that went around the middle, so that it would be held in place. Verse 29 says, Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart, on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. Just a couple of significant things there. One is it specifically mentions that these names of Israel be over his heart. Now, I think that probably can be meant in two senses. One, literally, right? Literally and physically, this breastpiece would be over his heart. But that may be symbolic also of the fact that Aaron is in a spiritual way representing the people before the Lord. It also mentions that this breastpiece is called a breastpiece of decision. What does that signify? Well, it's because it's a pouch, it's a pocket, and into this pocket are placed the Urim and the Thummim, which are used for deriving decisions, receiving a decision from the Lord, which is described in verse number 30. So verse 30 says, also put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastpiece, so they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus Aaron will always bear the, the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. We see these two stones show up in a couple different places throughout the Old Testament. We're really not exactly sure how they worked. There's even some debate about what these names mean. One suggestion is that these two words mean stand for light and dark, with maybe these two stones 
having sides that are light or white and the other side being black or dark. And one suggestion is that they would cast these two stones, kind of like casting lots, and if both stones came up white, that was a decision of yes from the Lord. If both stones came up black, that was a decision of no from the Lord. If they came up one white, one black, then there was no clear response from the Lord. That, that's one suggestion. Another suggestion is that it was just designed to give either a yes or no response. But here's the thing is the scriptures don't really tell us clearly exactly how they function. But apparently, based on the way that they're just quickly introduced here without much explanation, they were already being used in the life of Israel as a people because they knew what they were. So they knew what they were. This is the place where they're to be held in the priest's breastpiece above his heart. But somehow this was a means of, by the priest now, under the direction of the Lord, this was a means of deriving decisions from the Lord as to what the Israelite people should do. The last time that we see this, uh, these Urim and Thummim used is, um, or last time we see it referenced is in Ezra chapter 2. This is after the exile, and the comment is made that the Urim and Thummim were no longer in use, perhaps meaning that they had been lost during the time of the captivity. But somehow, in a way that we don't fully understand, these were used to seek the Lord's will and His guidance. Verse 31 says, Make the robe of the ephod entirely of blue cloth, with an opening for the head in its center. There shall be a woven edge like a collar around this opening, so that it will not tear. Make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn around the hem of the robe, with gold bells between them. The gold bells and the pomegranates are to alternate around the hem of the robe. Aaron must wear it when he ministers. The sound of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he will not die. That's pretty significant, isn't it? Now, there is some question about how exactly these bells functioned in terms of ensuring that he did not die. One of the suggestions that I remember being taught is that these bells would be used so that people outside would be able to hear if the bell stopped ringing, which meant that the priest had done something wrong and the Lord had killed him and they could pull him out of the most holy place without them having to go into the most holy place and them suffer the judgment of the Lord because only the high priest could go in there. That's one suggestion that I've heard. I don't know that that is detailed out that fully in Scripture, but that's one suggestion. Another suggestion is that there was some significance to this that, that enabled him to minister before the Lord in a mindful way, in a way that was serious-minded, in a way that reminded him that he was standing in the presence of the Lord and was to carry out his responsibility faithfully. But you can see in that warning that the Lord is a holy God, isn't he? He is a holy God and he is to be worshipped in fear. In verse 36, we see, Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as on a seal, holy to the Lord. 
fasten a blue cord to it, attach, to, attach it to the turban. It is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead, and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, whatever their gifts may be. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. So as a part of the turban, attached to the turban, is this piece of gold, and it's engraved on the front, holy to the Lord. So it dignifies Aaron as consecrated, holy to the Lord. But also this verse says that 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 is also significant for the sacrifices that Aaron will offer on behalf of the people, that those sacrifices too will be considered holy before the Lord. Verse 39 says, Weave the tunic of fine linen and make the turban of fine linen. The sash is to be the work of an embroiderer. Make tunics, sashes, and caps for Aaron's sons to give them dignity and honor. After you put these clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint and ordain them, consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. Make linen undergarments as a covering for the body, reaching from the waist to the thigh. Now what's significant about the undergarments is that the priests were to serve in a very modest way. We saw earlier in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 26, a very specific rule about making sure that the priests or that those who offered sacrifices were properly covered before they went up the altar before the Lord. This is also reminiscent of Genesis 3, isn't it? Where after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, God covered their shame. He covered their nakedness with clothing with garments of animal skin that he had made special for them. And so the priests also must be properly adorned, properly covered to have their shame and their guilt covered when they go into the the presence of the Lord. Verse 43 says that Aaron and his sons must wear them whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they will not incur guilt and die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants. That last verse is somewhat foreboding because we know that a little bit down the line, Nadab and Abihu will not follow properly the Lord's instructions. They will do an act of worship that is called strange. They offered strange fire before the Lord, it says, and the Lord killed them. So the worship of God is a very serious thing. Let me just draw this together into a few points of helping us to understand the abiding implications of this passage. Number one, our God is majestic, glorious, and beautiful. Our God is majestic, glorious, and beautiful. And that glory, that majesty is to be represented in the way that he is worshipped. I think we can see that in this passage. These garments, the way that the the priests were to be adorned, down to these minute details, all the the costly materials that were used in the making of the fine craftsmanship, I think is symbolic of the beauty and the glory of our God. Our God is majestic and glorious. And that majesty and glory is to be reflected in the way that he is worshiped. Secondly, I think we see in this passage that our God is infinitely holy. 
Our God is infinitely holy. And so to worship God, we are to reverence him with fear and with awe. Our God is to be worshipped with fear and with awe because he is holy. And by the way, that's not just an Old Testament principle. It's the writer of Hebrews who says, let us worship our God with fear because he is a consuming fire. God is always holy, isn't he? So it's not like God is holy in the Old Testament. He's not as holy in the New Testament. That would be a very bad misunderstanding of the scriptures. God's nature cannot change, can it? So he is infinitely holy before Moses and Aaron. He is just as infinitely holy as we gather in 2019 in Winfield, Alabama to worship him. He is the infinitely holy God. And so when we gather to worship him, we ought also to have this sense of reverence and of awe before the Lord. Thirdly, this passage teaches us that as sinners, we need to be represented by a mediator between us and God. God is infinitely holy, right? We are sinners. That's a problem. Because God, the holy God, cannot be in the presence of sin. So God, in his wisdom, ordained a priesthood starting with Aaron and then following on with his descendants, that priesthood was God's chosen means of mediating between himself, the holy God, and Israel, his sinful people. And so the priests would stand in the gap between God and the people. The priests would bring God's word and minister, minister and serve God to the people but then also vice versa, the, the priests would serve the people and represent them before the Lord. They were the intercessor, the mediator, the go-between, between the Lord and his sinful people. But here's the problem, and the writer of Hebrews addresses this in the New Testament, that Aaron and his sons and the priesthood that God ordained here in the book of Exodus, Aaron and his sons, they were still imperfect people, weren't they? They were still sinners. So we need mediation between us sinners and a holy God. But even Aaron and his sons, they were sinners too. They were frail. They were finite. And they passed away and they died. And new ones rose up. They were imperfect and they were finite. And so the Lord in his infinite wisdom was preparing the way through this priesthood, laying the foundation but preparing the way for a perfect high priest to come, wasn't he? The Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the Lord Jesus came, the writer of Hebrews says that he will serve God as priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron's priesthood. So Jesus is a forever priest. He is a perfect priest. He is an infinite priest. He is a righteous priest. And he stands for us between God and in us as sinners. He offers a sacrifice for us. He offers himself for us. He offers his own blood. And then he represents us before God so that we sinners might be able to approach a holy God. But this passage teaches us that we need that representation. We need that mediator between us and God. And now Jesus Christ has fulfilled everything that the priesthood of Aaron 
was meant to portray. Lastly, the worship of God is to be carried out in a holy manner in the way that he has prescribed in his word. We read details about how these garments were to be made. And you might think, how important is clothing? It really can't be that important, right? Well, let me ask you a question. What would have happened if Aaron had tried to minister before the presence of the Lord without these sacred garments? He would have died, wouldn't he? He would have died. He would have been put to death. Why? Is it because the linen is so powerful? Is it because the linen has magical powers or the blue or the purple yarn? No. It's because this is the command of the Lord, isn't it? This is the command of the Lord. And to worship Him, to worship Him rightly, is to worship Him in the way that He has instructed us to worship Him. That's why Nadab and Abihu lost their lives because they did not worship God in the way that he had instructed. Well, how about us today? How are we to worship God? Well, in the Old Testament, the primary means of God relating to his people was through a tabernacle, through a temple, through a priesthood. Today, the way that God relates to his people is through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, and through his church that he has appointed the church that Jesus Christ died for, the church that Jesus founded, the church that he is building, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The proper way to worship God today is through his church and worshiping Jesus Christ as the one and only way, the truth and the life, in whom there is salvation found in no one else except the Lord Jesus Christ and his name. And so we are to worship God in a way that he has prescribed which means we can't just make it up as we go along. We need to worship God in accordance with his word. Take his word seriously. Take his prescriptions with full reverence and seek to the best that we can understand and apply the scriptures so that we are worshiping God in the way that he has taught us and in a way that is reverent and with awe. And so I hope that this description of priestly garments the next time that you come across it in your Bible reading, that you might remember some of these things that we've talked about and that you won't get bogged down with what color or maybe with what material they're made out of, but that you'll see the significance of what this represented. That this priesthood was necessary to relate sinful people to a holy God and that God is to be feared and honored and that to worship him is to worship him in a way that he prescribes. And so I hope that this will be helpful to you and encouraging to you, but also a challenge to us to remember that we are called to be holy people, aren't we? Peter reminds us in 1 Peter that we are to be holy, just as our God is holy. Aaron and his sons were set apart unto God, sacred, holy for this special purpose. We are his sacred, set apart, consecrated people, aren't we? And we are to be holy as he is holy. So may the Lord help us to do that as we seek to live out his word. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father God, we thank you for being such a holy and righteous and just God. We also thank you, Father, that you are loving and merciful and compassionate. And that in your Son, Jesus Christ, 
we have found salvation and hope and life. Thank you that now that we have our great high priest, Jesus, sitting at your right hand, who is making intercession for us. We thank you that in his name we may approach your presence. Lord, give us hearts of awe and reverence. Give us hearts of joy and celebration and love. And Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth and in a way that fits with what you have taught us in your word. Remind us that you are holy and teach us, Lord, how to be holy as you are holy. We pray all this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.